This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this month's postcard for new books in Central Asian Studies. Uh, Today, it's uh, it's a great pleasure to have here as a a guest on on our podcast, Raffaello Pantucci, who has uh, co-authored one of the most interesting books of the last few months on Eurasian politics, and the book is called Sinostan, China's Inadvented Empire, which is out with Oxford University Press at the moment. Uh, Raffaello, congratulations for the publication of the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Luca, and thank you for having me. Uh, Raffaello, I mean, this is obviously, it's it's a book that uh, documents uh, a very long-term project, if you want. But before moving to the research, I, there is also a particularly uh, personal story here, which you wave through the, the book, uh, because your co-author, Alexandros Pedersen, is no longer with us. So I would like you to tell us uh, what kind of tribute does this book pay to the life and work of Alexandros? So Alex was a very dear friend uh, with whom... I had the idea over a decade ago of doing the research that ultimately developed into this book. Um, and we were both you know, researchers who were very interested in Central Asia. And as we traveled around the region, we thought one of the most interesting things that was happening was the growth of China's role in the region. Um, and so we embarked on a kind of project together uh, where, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, we managed to find funding to essentially indulge in our great passion of traveling around the region and discovering what was happening there. Um, And the two of us got to cover a lot of ground together, uh, getting around to all five of the Central Asian countries, uh, getting to Afghanistan, uh, getting all over Xinjiang and around China, um, ultimately tried to discover, you know, what we were seeing happening and watching this sort of transformation that we saw happening on the ground. Alex himself was a, a researcher who'd done a great deal of work on Central Asia and the Caucasus um, and was very interested in that part of the world and had been there for a very long time. Um, and, uh, you know, very sadly, 
he was a man who loved to live in these parts of the world. And he had taken on a job um, in 2014 working at the American University in Kabul um, when he was visiting a restaurant, uh, the Taverna uh, uh, restaurant in Kabul uh, with a colleague. And sadly, the two of them were murdered in a, in a terrorist attack. And, um, you know, that happened. And when it happened, we had already written, you know, a substantial portion of the manuscript enough that I could start taking around to publishers. And it's frankly taken me quite a few years to get it finally over the line uh, for many different reasons. But um, I did want to finish it. And I felt it felt appropriate to finish it with his name attached to it because we really had had the idea of doing the initial project together, you know, now over a decade ago. And it felt only appropriate to continue to carry it over the line with his name attached. And so in many ways, this book is something that is written uh, in his honor um, as much as it is involving his ideas and imbued with his sort of thinking as well. I think that the honor dimension of the book it's it's there because you you write in you know in the plural so it, it is it truly it's a it's, it's a collective work but the other dimension which of course is part of your collective work is the travel and I really enjoyed the the, the kind of style that you have uh, in the book because it reads very much like a travelogue part of it, it it's a travelogue and it's it is the kind of reading that especially students would really appreciate because it's it's not always easy to, to teach Asian studies without going you know going to Asia these days. So it is something which you know I really congratulate you on. Can you tell us a wee bit more about the the, the research role that you guys assigned to to the trip, uh, to, to the travels? Uh, because it's always a dimension very present in your book. Uh, what is different in looking at China in Central Asia through the kind of approach which you and your cohort had. So I think the idea of uh, the kind of travelogue element was something that, you know, I think we felt, and I certainly felt, um, was important because, you know, this is a region that we have a habit of looking at through the lens of kind of great games and grand geopolitics where we talk about, you know, countries and peoples in the very abstract sense of being moved as pawns in between these sorts of great powers that stir around. And the truth is, this misses the kind of a complexity and the nuance of what's actually going on on the ground. And these are, in some cases, quite inaccessible places. And we were very fortunate in getting to go out to a lot of them. And we covered a lot of territory. And, you know, together we covered, we went to all the countries, as I said, and uh, went to a number of them a number of times and covered a lot of roads. Um, but then subsequently, I got to go back to a lot of them uh, by myself on other research projects or with other colleagues. And so, you know, this travel element, it felt very important in terms of really breathing some life into what can seem a very kind of abstract and geopolitical um, discourse. And the truth is, at the end of the day, these sorts of big discourses are actually involving individuals and companies on the ground doing projects and going places and making decisions that are, you know, as much about their own personal choices as they are about, you know, their country's <laughs> geopolitical alignment. And that was an element we thought that was missing in a lot of the discourse around uh, what was happening. And this is important, I think, 
for a number of different reasons. First, because it gave more agency in many ways to the Central Asian countries, which we often forget when we think about Central Asian countries, we tend to talk about them as sort of post-Soviet states, or we talk about them as, you know, these newly formed countries that are sort of being pushed from one way to the other. Um, the truth is they are countries with their own agency and decision-making and government and people who want things themselves. And that, I think, drives a lot to what's happening. And then similarly, on the Chinese side, the point we always found, and, you know, I speak a bit of Mandarin um, and, you know, was able to go up and I would approach sort of, you know, we would approach random Chinese researchers we would find or people who, uh, you know, visit Confucius Institutes. We were always very keen to engage with the individuals. And as we engage with these individuals, they would you know, be quite warm and interested and have their own stories that they wanted to tell us. And they would tell us about where they had gone and why they had decided to, you know, set up a factory in Dushanbe in Tajikistan or, you know, set up a, a Chinese restaurant in, in Bishkek or set up something at the markets in Osh. And those decisions were all ones that you could see shades of the kind of bigger geopolitics, but were also very much about their own personal choices. And it was that human element that we really wanted to try to bring back into this discourse because that in some ways was the kind of transformational element that we'd see on the ground. Um, and we'd see it really impacting individuals' lives, not just be being about, you know, as I say, the, you know, Beijing's, you know, big investments into country X or, you know, country X's Kazakhstan's choice in pumping its oil one way or the other. You know, those people on the ground actually doing this and those people were the ones who were really being impacted by what was happening. And it felt important to really bring that story to life to help bring the bigger narratives of what was really transforming in the region um, to greater life. And the travelogue element was kind of really key to that in many ways. And then if I'm finally very honest with you, it's it's a really spectacular part of the world. I know you've traveled a lot around the region, so you know this well. Uh, but, you know, I, I encourage anyone to get out there and see it because it really is an extraordinary cradle of civilization. And there's lots happening in lots of different peoples and lots of different places to go visit. And, uh, you know, we were very fortunate in getting to go to a lot of them. And that felt like an important element of the story to tell. And you're absolutely right, because if there is one thing which this book gave me, it's the, the intention to go back and travel again to the region. You know, obviously, we had a couple of years in which we all stayed home, but it, it, it makes you want to, to do so. And uh, this idea of uh, the inadvertent nature of China's, you know, empire of role in Central Asia. Is this something that came along the way or is this uh, an outcome which you and Alex thought while re before researching this? Because this is something which I haven't really encountered anywhere else, as you were saying. You know, this is a different kind of uh, perspective from the great game narrative that we hear. So was this human dimension to the old China Central Asia issue that a lot that actually unveils the inadvertent nature of the empire. I think it does, because I think one of the key aspects we continually found, so we, we started doing the kind of research for this back in you know, 2010, 2011. And before that, we'd been traveling around the region a bit already, and we kind of had done some research on China, its rising role in the region. But you know, as we sort of went along in doing this, you know, we did a lot of travel in 2011, 2012, um, and then in 2013, President Xi Jinping goes to Kazakhstan and gives a speech in September of that year in which he talks about the creation of a Silk Road economic belt. And then he matched that a month later with a speech in Jakarta where he talks about the 21st century maritime Silk Road. And these two speeches become the kind of foundational element of the bigger Belt and Road Initiative. And what was fascinating to us was, you know, 
what he articulated in his speech in, in Kazakhstan in, in September 2013 was in many ways repeating what we had seen in our travels on the ground, which was essentially this idea that China was sort of connected to this part of the world. And China was developing this part of the world ultimately to create roads and routes and a, a kind of vision of economic connectivity through this region um, that seemed to be kind of happening on the ground already. And so he kind of stamped an imprimatur and a name, which ultimately became a kind of articulation of China's bigger uh, foreign policy around the world, onto something that we'd seen that was already happening. And what was kind of fascinating to us about that was that, you know, whenever we were talking to Chinese experts in particular, or Chinese officials about what we were discovering after we traveled around the region in sort of, you know, 2011-2012 was you know they would we would say to them you know well what's the kind of plan here you know and is is China what's the vision for China's vision and they say oh, we have no vision it's just sort of happening naturally on the ground and you know there's no kind of bigger strategic decision making but it was very clear that there was something that was happening but it was not happening in a way that Beijing was particularly focused on and by stamping the sort of Belt and Road Initiative name on top of it it seemed to us that what was ultimately happening was uh, what had been happening actually on the ground was being given a name, and then this name was being repeated in lots of other places. But at the same time, it wasn't clear to us that this was part of a kind of bigger project vision in the sense of China was saying, well, you know, we're going to build road A, that's going to help open up market B, and that's going to lead to outcome C. It seemed to us more that China was saying, look, we're going to offer economics, trade, connectivity as our vision of how we connect with the world. Um, that's going to be our vision for how we connect with the world. That's going to be our foreign policy concept. But there was no sense that then Beijing was thinking, well, if we do become the biggest economic actor in a small country, you know, relatively small country like, you know, Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, what does that actually mean? <laughs> because there are consequences of that. You become a political actor in becoming the biggest economic actor. And what we can never find was a sense then of Beijing saying, well, by becoming this very significant political actor, we're going to have to take on some responsibilities. We're going to have to do something in this country to help this country develop because we are now such a consequential part of this economy. There are kind of issues and you know responsibilities that come as a result of that. And uh, we never found a sense in Beijing or any Chinese strategists that we talked to that they were thinking in that direction. They were just saying, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. We're there. We will continue to trade and offer you know, infrastructure, or we will buy whatever product this country is selling, uh, or whatever resource they have, and our people will go and do this. But there's no sense of, well, what does that actually mean? You know, when we think about Western countries, and they become, you know, big economic actors in the country, there's a sense of, well, we're trying to help transform this country, we're helping it develop, we're helping it move forwards. We never got that sense from Chinese uh, actors. But at the same time, because of the sheer size of what China was doing, and its consequence, it was becoming a very consequential actor, but there was no sense of then what that means and what China was going to do in these places. And that's where this kind of idea of the inadvertent empire came from, where you had a, a part of the world in Central Asia where clearly China is the major economic power, the, the coming economic power, the one that's becoming an increasingly political important actor, in some ways an increasing security actor as well. But at the same time, there was no sense of well, what is China going to do with this? Or how is China going to fix some of the many problems that do unfortunately still exist in this part of the world? Um, and that seemed to us quite significant because it does seem as though you've got a situation where the most increasingly consequential actor is not an actor that's that interested in trying to fix any problems or do anything. Um, but it will just sort of engage with whoever's in power. It will just let things happen on the ground and just say, well, we're not here to try to resolve anything. You have your history. 
we will just engage with you in economic terms and focus on our particular interests. But, you know, that has consequences. And I think Afghanistan in many ways is the perfect articulation of this, where we've seen a situation where China is increasingly continuing to play an important role in Afghanistan, but it's not trying to resolve any of the issues. But this is ultimately giving the new Taliban government um, a kind of uh, uh, an easy pass in a way to continue on, to not also bother to deal with many of the fundamental economic problems that they've inherited, many of the social issues they've inherited, um, but just sort of to continue on in the direction that they want. And China sort of, with no judgment, saying, yep, you continue to do that. We're just going to continue to engage on our terms. We're not going to we're going to become very consequential. We're going to continue to engage with you, but we're not going to try to get you to actually fix some of the problems you need to fix at home to ultimately help the country develop. And that is quite important, I think, because it does, uh, it does, you know, countries sometimes need help to move forwards. And China's not going to actually offer that thing. They'll offer uh, whatever they think is important to them, but that doesn't necessarily equate to what actually is needed on the ground. Well, you did anticipate my my question on on Afghanistan, so uh, I'm going to move on my on my following one. And, and first of all, I'd like to say that it's this, this idea that you managed to unveil this inadvertentness. To my mind, it's just because uh, you guys mm, had this focus, which was not too too large and not too small. You know, it wasn't a global study, no, it wasn't an anthropolog- anthropological study. So you have this personal, regional, national, Asia-wide focus which intertwined with the narrative, and that's what it's deeply original about this book, I would say. I got a question from a researcher point of view, Rafael, if you don't mind. And and this one is uh, I know that you know the, the, there is pretty good documentation of your interaction with the, with the Chinese uh, officials. Uh, did you have access to Central Asian officials? And, and if you did have access to them, uh, how was the interaction? Because, you know, dealing with officials from Central Asia, it's not uh, an easy part of the research that we do as Eurasian Studies scholars. So could you please tell us a little bit more about that particular component of your fieldwork? Sure. I mean, look, we were... Uh, we're very fortunate, you know, both during the research that, you know, I got to do uh, with Alex, uh, with Alexandros before he passed. And then subsequently, I've been very fortunate in getting to travel around the region a lot and actually engaging with um, uh, uh, officials in uh, every uh, Central Asian country um, at some level or another, and also in Afghanistan when the Republic government was um, in power. Um so we did have the opportunity to talk to a lot of them. And it was, frankly, challenging <laughs> uh, to get through. In some places, it was more challenging than others. So, you know, in, in, in Kyrgyzstan, in Kazakhstan, um, it was, you know, officials were fairly easily accessible. Um, we would reach out through whatever methods we had. In some cases, this was a case of, you know, uh, uh, tapping our, you know, diplomatic connections <laughs> you know both of us were you know we have a, a multiplicity of passports alex uh, was both european and american i have you know a, a couple of european passports um so we'd sort of tap diplomatic communities and get them to see if they could help introduce us we would you know reach out through think tanks um often the first point of entry in these countries was you know the sort of official government connected think tanks um and we found researchers there who you know we would try to engage with repeatedly and that would develop a level of trust and then they would sort of open up and engage with us and also invite us to events where we would get to meet other officials. Um, and so it, it was it was really a, it, it was a 
contact sport in many ways, <laughs> Luca. You know, and I think it's a case of returning to these places, continue to engage, and I think continue to show interest. And you know, we never, uh, you know, we never uh, offered. You know, we didn't try to push our views on people. We just tried to say, well, you know, tell us what you think is happening, how you're engaging with it. And it was, you know, it was it was interesting. And on China specifically, it was sometimes a bit sensitive, frankly, to get people to open up and talk about it. But what we did find was, you know, people were willing to engage. And, you know, for the first for for a chunk of this research, you know, near the beginning, I was actually affiliated with the Chinese think tank at the time. And so when I was traveling around, um, you know, I would say, well, you know, I'm coming from a Chinese think tank. Um, Alex is coming from, a, at the time, he was affiliated with, I think, American, British think tank, sorry. Um, and so, you know, they would look at us and say, oh, well, you know, if they're, they're interested in China and one of them is actually based there and, you know, speaks a bit of Mandarin. So that's kind of, we're more willing to talk to them. So it was really a question of sort of continuing to open up. And we were very fortunate in many ways that people were willing to open up and talk to us. And in some cases, I think it was also just the kind of sheer randomness of our connection. So we were very fortunate in getting to go down to Orsh in, in Kyrgyzstan and uh, finding some local officials there who would talk to us. Or we got around, you know, in, in Turkmenistan to Marie and um, some other different outside the capital in Ashgabat. And I think meeting people there, you know, people are sort of surprised to find researchers who've managed to get out that far and they're sort of willing more willing to talk to you because you're a bit of a novelty in some ways. So it was really a case of just sort of getting out there and trying our luck. And we were very fortunate um, in, you know, the amount of time ultimately we spent on doing the research for this to have enough time to be able to get out to a lot of places uh, to talk to a lot of people. Um, but it was, it, was, it was curious. And we did have some very uh, funny encounters uh, with officials, uh, both in China and outside, um, you know, who were, always just sort of slightly intrigued in some ways as to why we were asking all these questions and how we'd gotten out to whatever remote corner we'd managed to get to. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And the book tells quite a few, quite a few of those stories, you know, like mm. for, from, from government encounters to, you know, chance encounters in bars. And, and it, it, it's great because it really captures what doing fieldwork in Central Asia really is about, ultimately. Um, one more Research or the question, Raffaello. It's this. Uh, the research, of course, focuses on China and Central Asia, but you have great focus on Xinjiang and great focus on Afghanistan, which are not two easy places to do research in. Could you please tell us a little bit more about uh, the context in which you, uh, well, you had to deal while while being in in Xinjiang, which is quite prominent in the book and also Afghanistan. Well, I mean, to start with Xinjiang, I mean, Xinjiang was, you know, in many ways, the kind of uh, the genesis of doing this research, from my perspective, at least, was about trying to understand Xinjiang. When I, I, I lived in China from 2009 to 2013, and I was really interested at the time in trying to understand the problem of terrorism in China. Um, and the problem in terrorism in China is very much seen as associated with Xinjiang. And so 
I was trying to understand that. And in trying to understand that, I discovered it was very, very difficult to do that because, frankly, people wouldn't really talk to you. Chinese officials were very aware. The ones who were working on these issues were very wary of talking to you. The locals, of course, were very worried about it as well. That was just a very sensitive question in some ways. So it was quite difficult to get into that. But what was more accessible was the what was happening on the ground, the actual reality, the sort of infrastructure that was being built, the companies that were working out there, the people that were ultimately trying to develop the region. And in many ways, that development from a Chinese perspective was seen as being, you know, um, is seen as being part of the answer to dealing with the problems of extremism and terrorism within China. But if you're going to deal with them in China, the truth is these things have a link across the border as well in Central Asia. And so it's about developing the entire region. And if you make the entire region prosperous, then you'll help make Xinjiang prosperous and then make it stable. This is the kind of the Chinese conception. And so in understanding that, we started to think, well, actually, this is much bigger than just a very simple counterterrorism problem that we look at it in, in you know, Western country where we say, well, you know, you've got networks, you've got individuals, disrupt those, you deal with those problems, you figure out how to stop the ideology and the problem goes away. The Chinese approach is much grander in some ways, and what we've seen subsequently is that it's it's uh, you know it's sort of it has an economic element and security component, and the economic element, which is kind of what we were uncovering in terms of looking at the linkages across the region, was one side of it. But the other side of it is this very draconian crackdown that we did see and still see in Xinjiang now, uh, which is unfortunately very hard. Um, to entirely get. But again, it, actually, in the early years of doing this project, Xinjiang was relatively accessible, actually. You know, we went around there a lot. We got up to all of the borders that China shares with Central Asia and uh, Pakistan. The one border we couldn't get near was the one with Afghanistan, which is uh, near a village called Daptar and a place called the Wahang Corridor and the Wakjir Pass. Um, you know, it was the one border where we couldn't persuade someone to take us right up to it. All the others, we drove literally up to the border. <laughs> in some cases, we got right into border posts and met with the border guards who would sort of chat with us and offer us a cup of tea and, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, a, a meal. Um, but, you know, the, the Afghan one was the one we, re- one we really couldn't actually get close to because the security was sort of so tight there. But all the others, we got right up to the borders. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, in, in Central Asia, we managed also to get to the, the borders of all of them. In Afghanistan, of course, getting down the Wahan corridors, very complicated, and we didn't get to go down there. But we did get to go to all of the others. And this was, you know, this helped us kind of understand even better in some ways the interlinkages that there are uh, uh, between uh, the region, uh, Xinjiang, and, uh, you know, Central Asia. And, you know, as you get up towards these borders on the Chinese side, you find villages which are essentially of, you know, when you get near to the Tajik border in the, what's called the Tajik Autonomous Region within China, there are Tajik villages there, people who are clearly Tajik. They speak languages that are, you know, not identical to, you know, the languages that you hear across the border in Tajikistan, but are certainly leaning in that direction. If you get up towards Kyrgyzstan, there are Kyrgyz populations there. And all along the long border China has with Kazakhstan, there are large Kazakh populations and, you know, large ethnic Russian populations as well, uh, left over from, you know, generations back. And so, you've got this sort of region which is actually very close to it's the other side. And if you go across the border into China, you, into Central Asia, you find similarly, you know, populations of ethnic Dungans, you know, which are essentially Hui uh, Muslim or Han Chinese, uh, uh, you know, live Muslim, Han Chinese Muslims living there. And, you know, there, there's sort of a deep interlinkage that goes back and forth. And getting out onto the ground into these places helped us sort of uncover that. And getting around Xinjiang in particular was... Uh, helped us really breathe life into that sort of underlying concept. But one thing we did notice is getting up to Xinjiang was when we first started going in 2009, 2010, was it was 
accessible. We could get around. You know, there was security, but it was all pretty haphazard. But as we went back every year, the security tightened up. And I think the last visit I did in, I think it was the last visit I did was in 2017, the security was palpably tighter. And it was very difficult to get outside the room It was, even when you got to a room you got to the airport, there's all sorts of layers of security. And it was very clear that the security side had dominated the economic side. Um, and that was the sort of thing that you really noticed in getting out to Xinjiang. Um, in Afghanistan, uh, frankly, it was uh, very difficult to uh, travel around because, you know, in the years we went, there was, a, a, you know, war happening. Um, uh, we went on sort of official trips, uh, as in managed to attach ourselves to official visits that were happening, but then also managed to sort of go out there by ourselves um, until sadly in, in 2014, Alex uh, uh, was murdered there. Um, and after that, I didn't end up going back again, unfortunately, but I did manage to engage with lots of Afghans uh, in China and in Central Asia on projects that were looking at China's sort of activities there. So I was able to sort of uncover it. But Afghanistan was a difficult one to get around. And I think, you know, in our, in our travels there, we... Um, you know, we managed to get out of, of Kabul a bit, but it was not very easy. And frankly, it was very expensive and, and very difficult to do. But there, you know, where we did get in, where we did go in Kabul, we did find Chinese. Again, they were just sort of intrigued to find, you know, white researchers who spoke a bit of Mandarin who were interested in hearing their stories. And frankly, they were very welcoming and very hospitable. You know, one of the more random stories we had in in in, in Kabul was, uh, you know, we, we asked at our hotel, we wanted to go to a, a Chinese restaurant. We thought, well, we should go meet Chinese people. So we tried to find a Chinese restaurant we go to. And our hotel said, oh, you know, they said, oh, a Chinese restaurant. We sort of winked at us and said, oh, you want to go to this place? And they told the cabbie where to take us. We got to this restaurant and we went in and it was just sort of a house. <laughs> and when we asked the people, well, we're here to have dinner, the people just sort of looked at us confused. And it turned out actually that we'd been sent to a brothel. And apparently... <laughs> A hotel owner had thought we were saying we wanted to go to a brothel because apparently there was a number of brothels at the time that were masquerading as Chinese restaurants. And, you know, we had these sort of very confused people who were saying, oh, we don't really have, you know, we have a restaurant. We have a, you know, we have a, we have a chef here, but he's not really a restaurant. And so we ended up having to be sent around the corner to an actual Chinese restaurant, which was nearby. Uh, where we met, again, a very nice chef. And, you know, he said, oh, what are you guys doing here? And we said, oh, well, we want to eat your food. What's your favorite food from your city? And he was from uh, somewhere, I think it was in Hebei, if I remember correctly. And he cooked us some rest, some dishes from his, from his, um, from his local province. So, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was difficult, but we managed to get around. And then, and then the other interesting story I remember from Kabul is we got into the Confucius Institute there, which was, you know, of all the Confucius Institute we visited, it was kind of the most misbegotten, of course. And at the time that we visited, all of the Chinese teachers had been pulled out because of the security situation. Um, it was based at Kabul University. Um, but the teacher was this young chap who, you know, who was this uh, young Afghan called Omar, who spoke a bit of Mandarin um, and was trying to teach others it. But it was, you know, he was struggling and he was struggling because, you know, he, his Mandarin was rudimentary. The students he had were not that eager in many ways. <laughs> They'd been sort of sent to him rather than elected to do it. Um, but he was still soldiering on and, you know, he was doing it. And, you know, since then, I know there's been a lot of investment actually by China into, uh, into Kabul University. They built buildings in the university. They've done a lot there. Um, and I've heard from others that actually the language uh, uh, classes, ha the quality has improved. But, you know, the guy was very diligent and very dedicated and very keen to do it and was, again, very welcoming and giving us the time to show us what he was doing and introducing us a bit to the courses he was trying to teach. So, yeah, no, it was a very challenging environment to try to get around. But what we found repeatedly at every stop, and this is why we put the travelogue element so prominently in it, was 
that people were wanted to tell us their stories and had interesting stories to tell that in many ways articulated the bigger vision that we thought we were finding uh, when we went out there. Oh, and it makes for a, for a great read, actually, the, the, that particular component. And, and if I may also add, the, the, your constant engagement with, with the territory and you know, what you said, you're traveling through, through the borders and or to the borders actually uh, reveals that there is a certain part of China that geographically, culturally is part of Central Asia as well. So we always, we almost always forget this, but this book does a fantastic job in revealing the connection be, between the, the two regions. Rafael, the last couple of questions, um, and then I'll let you go. Well, the first one, really, it's about uh, this, uh, this, the sustainability of this inadvert, inadvertent policy of China and Central Asia. I mean, uh, it has been successful, of course it has. So do you think that we're going to see more of the same in the next four or five years, or is it going to be some more uh, structural engagement with the region? So I think, you know, uh, I think, look, I, first of all, I just, I'm really glad that you got that feel for the region because in many ways, you know, and, and I say this, uh, you know, not intending to dispute that Xinjiang is part of China because it certainly is part of China. Um, but I think one of the things that really stood out to us is how much Xinjiang is really a Central Asian country in many ways. You know, and in some ways, you know, depending on how you classify Central Asia, some include Afghanistan, some don't, you know, it is in many ways the sixth or seventh, you know, Central Asian country. Um, in terms of the populations, in terms of the, the, the environment, in terms of the region, you know, it's, it's very, very similar to the region it's adjacent to and has all of the same issues that you have there in terms of, you know, being very far from any seas and, and far from any trade. So, you know, it, I'm very glad to hear you, you say that that, that that spoke to you because it was something we really found and is, I think, a really important element to remember in terms of Xinjiang and also how it's connected to Central Asia and therefore how China is connected to Central Asia. Um, so I, I'm really glad to hear you say that because it was very important in some ways. It was very important insight I felt we found there, and you know I'm glad it, it, it came through. In terms of the question of you know how how sustainable is this kind of inadvertent empire policy, I think you know I, I think it is uh, probably something that China will continue because you know in in many ways you know there is a structure to China's engagement in the region. You can look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, which is an entity which was born out of the end of the Cold War, initially as a kind of border delineating structure between China and you know the new countries of what was the Soviet Union, you know, that it shared a border with, which would be Russia, uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. Um, you know, it sort of delineated those and then it evolved when Uzbekistan joined in 2001 into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, but it was always a vehicle that China, I think, saw as an umbrella to engage with the region. It was never the only structure. Um, and from China's perspective, it was always about, well, we want to have a kind of a, an entity there that you know, can give the region a sense of having some say over what we're doing. But at the same time, you know, give a sort of you know, an entity which you know, means the region is engaging with us and we're engaging on their terms because, of course, within the SEO, nothing can get done if you don't have total agreement, unanimity. Other, everyone has a kind of veto power over everything. Um, so that's the kind of structure, but it's a structure that hasn't really done much in many ways, in practical terms, beyond hold a lot of meetings. Um, but actually, that is having a kind of transformational effect in a way. And I think that's the other side of this inadvertent empire policy is that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that China isn't that focused in some ways on this region as a priority, it is having huge impact on the ground and a transformational impact. And that is significant. And I actually think that, you know, it will be sustainable from China's perspective for some time because, you know, while this region is very important for China and in particular for its general 
desire to stabilize and develop Xinjiang, in the bigger scheme of China's view on the world, it's not that important. I always remember in uh, 2010 or so, when or 2011, when Kyrgyzstan was debating joining the Eurasian Economic Union, there was a huge debate in Kyrgyzstan um, about whether this was a good idea or not, and whether this would destroy the country's economic connection with China, which was really important because you, know, you go in Kyrgyz markets and it's very clear there's a lot of products coming in from China that was helping these markets develop and grow. And you know these were then being sold onto other places. And it was a really important transit route you know, that Kyrgyzstan was benefiting from. There was a sense of, oh my God, if the Eurasian Economic Union comes in and therefore our border tariffs are no longer determined by Bishkek, but actually determined by Moscow because the nature of the, EA, the Eurasian Economic Union means that, you know, other powers sort of have some say over what the unified tariff trade barriers are across the entire region. You know, this will destroy entirely our, our economic relationship with China. And this was a big debate that was batting around and so on and so forth. And, you know, when we went to ask, you know, Chinese officials, we found two views in, in, in Beijing. And one was a view that said, well, you know, actually, this is quite negative uh, because it's going to be negative for, you know, uh, for Xinjiang trade with the Kyrgyzstan, and it's going to, you know, weaken that, and that will maybe damage, you know, Xinjiang's economy, and that's negative. But there's another view that said, actually, it could be positive, because it will make trading with basically this entire region much easier. You won't have to cross many borders. You will be able to essentially cross a border into Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan, and in tariff terms, you will already be at Europe's borders, because then on the other side is Belarus. And so there was like a logic that said, well, actually, this is good in trade terms. But then when we looked on the ground in, in, in Kyrgyzstan, you know, there's a very funny interview that the local Chinese ambassador did where, you know, this was bubbling around saying, oh, my God, what's this going to do? What's this going to mean for Kyrgyzstan? And, and people were asking. And finally, someone asked the Chinese ambassador and he said in a very candid moment, which is quite surprising for Chinese diplomats on the ground, he said, well, look, we don't really care. You know, <laughs> you guys need to decide what you want to do. If you want to join this thing, or you don't. It's up to you. China's relation, economic relation with Kyrgyzstan is an irrelevance. It's a rounding error from China's perspective of wider trade relationships. It just doesn't matter to us. You decide what you want and we'll trade with you anyway. And that, I think, is the key. You know, is the fact is that it's really important to these countries, but it just doesn't actually matter to Beijing. And I think that's the point is that, you know, when we went around Beijing, we saw that what Beijing was doing in this region was really important to this region. But when we went to Beijing, we wouldn't find as a priority on anyone's list. No one would say, oh, well, we have this vision for Central Asia and Afghanistan, and this is kind of the plan. It was happening because these are neighboring regions with China, and China had a relationship there, had embassies there, had people there, and so they had an interest there. But it wasn't a vision, but it was something that was really transforming on the ground. Um, but it was clear that this wasn't the top of anyone's inbox in Beijing. And that is kind of the imbalance that you have. And this is not going to change, frankly, anytime going forward. From Beijing's perspective, certainly, because Beijing is still far more focused on its geostrategic relationships, its economic relationship with Europe, its relationship with the United States, far and away more important than whatever happens in Central Asia. Um, and even actually China's relationship with Russia is more important than what is happening in its relationship with Central Asia. And so Central Asia gets stuck in this situation where its increasingly important economic and political partner is one who is just not focused on them. It's much more focused on others, and their relationship comes second to all of that. And that is why this kind of inadvertent empire notion, I think, will preponderate for uh, uh, the medium-term future, at least. And, you know, which makes the final point 
of the book, the fact that, you know, this inadvertent empire could become inevitable, you know, if the other states don't pick up their game, actually even more relevant. Because if this is a region which, in Ch- for China's perspective, remains relatively marginal, well, then you can imagine how it is in the US, the EU, or now even Russia. So it is a very interesting um, point that, that you make. And Raffaello, I think that uh, all the points that needed to be across are made. So I just wanted to thank you a lot, not only for your time, but also for uh, doing this research, which is uh, actually uh, revealing a lot about, uh, and, uh, about a very important development, but also looks at it from a, a perspective which we would no norm, no long, I mean, normally not have in, in this kind of, uh, of research. So thanks a lot. And uh, I, I look forward to reading your future work, but also I think this is the time in which we celebrate uh, this book, uh, what it represents for you personally, what it represents for us as a community of scholars. And thanks a lot for your time, Raffaello. Grazie Luca. Thank you so much for the invitation and for the really interesting and rich discussion. And thank you so much for taking the time to read the book and, uh, and talking about it. And uh, I think capturing the essence of what we're trying to do so is so accurately. So grazie di nuovo. Thank you. Not a problem. So uh, thanks again to Raffaello. Uh, I totally recommend this uh, Sinostan, China's Inadvertent Empire, uh, written by Raffaello Pantucci and Alexandro. Alexander Peterson. My name is Lukanczewski. I've been your host this afternoon. Goodbye. Thank you.